Hello, and welcome to the John 315 Podcast, the show where we break open the mysteries of the most popular and misunderstood Bible verses and put them back into context. I am your host. They call me Jonathan 4K Van Shank, and here is my co-host. They call him Jeremy 360P Swingle. Now, Jeremy, why do they call you 360P Swingle? Well, I'm using this uh, amazing built-in laptop camera, and I just look glorious. If you blow me up to full screen, you can, you know, almost get a full 10 pixels of my face. It's true. We can we can resolve each individual pixel on your nose. It's truly astounding. <laughs> if you've ever wanted to do that, now's your opportunity, John. It's true. Well, to our listening audiences at home, uh, in case it was not clear from context clues, the John 315 podcast is moving to video now. So for those of you who are are watching on video platforms, you can now see Jeremy and Mai's uh, uh, beautiful faces. Well, I'll, I'll at least speak for Jeremy. Jeremy's beautiful face. Uh, uh, and <laughs> my face might be beautiful, but it's your face that is much more clearly visible with your beautiful 4k camera that you're using <laughs> yeah we should we should have swapped like we should have gotten you the 4k camera and i should have been using the built-in laptop camera you said it not me <laughs> but we're, we're hoping to get you a better camera in the near future is that right jeremy well I hope so. i hope so um in the meantime you can see the very grainy uh swingle kitchen behind me just because i you know, only the classiest in podcast production here at the John 315 <laughs> podcast, right? <laughs> no, it's great. And in uh, in my case, you can see the, the beautiful blue wall uh, that's immediately behind my uh, uh, desk at the office. Uh, <laughs> so it's uh, it's pretty great. Both of us are nothing but the highest production value here at the John 315 podcast. I mean, we make so much money doing this. We might as well invest it just, you know, in our listening audience and, and now our viewing audience so that they it's can. It's true. We, we, we love to do capital investment in our business and brand. <laughs> so that being said, I think we'll go ahead and, you know, link to our YouTube channel, um, which is not set up as of recording this. But um I'm I'm led to believe uh, by my own wayward heart will be set up <laughs> by the time <laughs> we post this episode to our podcasting apps. So you'll have a link there if you want to listen along. I, I'm very much a car podcast kind of person, but if I really want to listen deeply to something, then I have to get the full, like I have to sit down. And in that case, it's usually better if there's video, you know, that's, that's my own take on it at least so if you're dying to know everything about politics and theology in this like five or six part series that we're uh, undertaking doing part two today then you gotta sit down and really take it in with our beautiful uh 360p <laughs> presentation yeah it's true and uh and jeremy's the one who uh prepared a lot of the content for this episode so uh <laughs> it's you're gonna be seeing mostly his face during this episode <laughs> well I, I think john will have a lot to say about it that's for sure um hopefully, but, uh... hopefully one or two things uh, but jeremy so you mentioned that we're in the middle of uh we're in part two of a, a certain number of parts uh, I, I was a little bit cagey in the podcast description for the last episode about exactly how many parts there are. So how about we just like take a second and give people uh, a little bit of context. I know it's been a little while since uh, uh, we've uploaded a podcast episode. So where where are we in this series, Jeremy, and where are we hoping to head over the next couple weeks? Well, it's funny you say that because I'm pretty sure it's actually been a while since we've recorded our last podcast episode, not so much uploaded. 
Oh, good point. <laughs> I think we had a long hiatus there, and this is actually going to come out pretty quickly on the tails of the last one, at least by yeah, our standards. That's a good point. I think my daughter has tripled in age since we've recorded a podcast. So, And funny enough, all of a sudden, we now have time to do it again, right? Yeah, so. <laughs> it's, it's, it's true. Funny how that works, right? Uh, yeah, so, so last time we took a look at, uh, you know, Matthew 20, uh, the whoever must uh, be the greatest among you must be your slave and kind of took take a look at like the concept of power as it relates to uh, theology and a Christian worldview. And I think that was a really important fundamental starting point for understanding politics because Christians have weird understandings about about power. There's a lot of bad theology out there, uh, to say the least, on this topic. And so I thought it was good to start with, like, what does Jesus think fundamentally makes someone strong? Um, what makes someone great? Right, this concept of of servanthood, even slavehood, uh, and so okay, so that was uh, our, our starting point. But we're going to be making actually quite a stark pivot uh, in this part two, to talking about the necessity of inflicting retribution on the unrighteous. Right, <laughs> it's a kind of a kind of a big shift um, from <laughs> from last week uh, or last episode rather. So yeah, I guess what gives, you know, having just talked about uh, the the necessity of giving up power and embracing the position of servanthood, uh, what's this change to, now we're talking about today, this verse in in Exodus 21, pretty familiar probably for most, uh, verses 23 to 25, it says, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. I think most people probably know the eye for an eye part. That's what Jesus quotes in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. But the uh, actual statement, a little bit longer, has a few more body parts in it. Uh, and of course, the life for life is, is a crucial part of it there too. Mm-hmm. So this is part of the law of Moses. So So we're shifting now to talking about the law. And necessarily, there's going to be some questions about how does the law of Moses apply to us today. We'll take a look at that in the other meat section at the end. We'll talk about the uses of the law. But uh, first of all, of course, we want to understand, you know, what does the law mean, <laughs> right? Um, and uh, so, so I guess before we before we jump too much into that, I'm curious, John, what you think about this idea of okay, so Jesus has just, you know, last week we looked at. I keep saying last week. It's last episode. Last episode. Uh, yes. <laughs> the last episode we looked at at Jesus being a servant, right? And and now we're looking at eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. The government must inflict retributive justice on on people who uh, are in uh, particular kinds of sins. We might say sins that violate the rights of another directly, you know. Mm-hmm. So so I don't know. How how does this relate? <laughs> How do these two go together? Yeah, no, interesting. Um, <clears throat> I think part of the way that, uh, you know, I sort of make sense of it is that there's kind of two uh, uh, separate ideas that are going on here. Um, one of them has to do with the way that, uh, like, an individual should conduct themselves in societies and the way that we should think about, like, authority structures and, uh, and how to have authority structures that are honoring to God. Uh, which is very much this, you know, we were talking about in the last episode of uh, um, servant leadership. Um, 
And so this, uh, you know, very much this idea of, you know, you want to make yourself uh, less and, and uh, uh, you know, the, you, you get the, 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 the command to, to husbands that they should, you know, uh, uh, love their wives in the same way that Christ loved the church, you know, namely putting himself to death for her. And uh, so, so, you know, very much this uh, putting the needs of others above yourself and, and humbling yourself in that. Um, but then when we pivot to this discussion of the law, there is still kind of the outstanding question of, you know, how should we still structure society in light of the fact that not everybody is going to do like act righteously all the time? And so how do we then deal with people who don't do that which is righteous? How do we deal with sin and the um, uh, the wickedness that necessarily is going to happen in human societies? So, so one of them is sort of how, like, what's the ideal that you as the individual should aspire to? And then on the other hand, you have the, well, but given that we aren't going to see that ideal instantiated on, you know, this side of Christ's, you know, full kingdom, how do we then kind of deal with that fact in reality i i guess that's sort of my initial thought coming right out the gate there sure yeah there's there's the the theory and there's the ideal and then there's the real world in which there's complicated things because it's a sinful world and this is where politics becomes a thing and i think there's a lot of terrible political theology out there coming from really big names in evangelicalism frankly i, I won't name drop at this point we might later in this series but there's some people who I really actually admire and I think are great theologians who nevertheless are just kind of lunatics when it comes to politics. Like they think that <laughs> that um, a pietistic would be the word I'd use to describe them, which is, is a way of saying like uh, they're so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. Right. And so they might they might, uh, for example, one opinion I've heard is that you know you shouldn't use a gun to defend yourself to defend your family if someone attacks your family because you know like we're supposed to be willing to you turn the other cheek and to give ourselves you know up and that person's probably not a christian if you shoot and you kill them you know they're probably not going to heaven right and all this stuff and I'm like okay yeah but what about the whole like love your neighbor as yourself thing what about the whole like uh, husbands love your wives and give yourselves up for them as Christ gave himself up for the church. What about the whole, like, it's actually my ethical duty to defend my wife and my children thing, you know, like what, <laughs> um, it, like uh, this whole like idea of kind of like playing God, <laughs> I guess, um, in the way we ignore evil in the real world and refuse to deal with it appropriately. Uh, and it's like, we can, somehow that's like obedience to God because we're not sending someone to an early grave before they could have heard the gospel. It's like, well, that's actually kind of playing God. It's not <laughs> being a just Christian, you know, that's one example I'm kind of going off on there. But I think, I think the point of what, uh, what I'm trying to say and what I think is good to orient ourselves in, in this discussion of politics is that there are things which as individuals operating in a spiritual capacity as Christians, we shouldn't do, but which somebody should do as an agent of the state, right? And one of those things is um, the execution of murderers and the, you know, the. this is what this passage is obviously saying, and we'll get into it, um, but also 
you know, other forms of remunerative justice, a, a thief, for example, what do we do with a thief, right? Well, one option is that would be a bad option is for <laughs> me to, you know, equip a gun and try to uh, enter the home of the thief and potentially escalate the situation and all this stuff, right? It, it's good to have uh, what we might call like a stable societal solution that can handle these kinds of sins. We're not talking about having a, a dispute with your wife or getting angry at your friend and not talking to them for a few days. We're not talking about like lying one time. We're talking about fraud or being so angry that you kill someone or harm them, right? These kinds of things that go beyond uh, just sins, but, but, but enter the category of crimes. That's also another important thing. We may have talked about that in the last podcast. I already forget uh, the distinction between sins and crimes. They're not the same thing. All crimes are sins, or at least they ought to be. It's not the way it actually works in America, uh, certainly. But all crimes ought to be sins, um, but not all sins ought to be crimes, if that makes sense. So those are some things that I I think will help orient us to to understanding this passage and uh, why it's the case that as Christians, we should turn the other cheek and not seek vengeance, which is how Jesus interprets this passage. But the civil authorities still ought to punish evil. So that's kind of how this relates to last week. And, you know, to give a little sneak preview, but also to show that there's a certain logical flow to our episodes, uh, you know, and the parts we're doing this in, I believe you're going to primarily be working on Romans 13 for next week. Is that correct, John? Yes. Yeah. The next episode is going to be on Romans 13. And we're going to see another example of this same theme coming out of, uh, you know, submitting to governing authorities. And, you know, the question is, uh, uh, you know, what is the purpose of those governing authorities? And it turns out that the text is going to give us some clues as to what those governing th- authorities are supposed to be doing. And it's going to sound very similar to <laughs> eye for an eye and tooth said. for a tooth. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's funny because we introduced our last episode by saying that we were libertarians and now we're about to have a whole episode about why the state should kill murderers, right? It's, it's, <laughs> it's, just, it's true. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not a perfect libertarian. <laughs> this would not get us in the good graces of a lot of secular libertarians. And to be fair, like, I don't exactly trust the American court system to give people a fair trial. So it is worth discussing whether... It's smart to apply some of the Mosaic law in America in 21st century, and we can talk about that a little later when we get to the uses of the law in our other meat section. Yes, Uh, (laughs) it's possible to hold on one hand the the truth that uh, the, the law of Moses condones capital punishment, and on the other hand to say... And, you know, the American state should not institute it. (laughs) Right. And it's also possible for Christians to politely disagree on that front, too. That's true. So, anyways, that being said, by way of orientation, I think we're done with that. Um, And uh, so, what is this specific law about, you know? uh, There's a Latin phrase that we're going to use probably a million times by the end of this episode. Excuse me. And it's this phrase, lex talionis. And uh, this is just going to be the shorthand way of referring to this law. It it means, if I'm not mistaken, like the law of retaliation, essentially. And it's not retaliation in the sense of like uh, getting vengeance on somebody. In fact, it's kind of actually the opposite of that. Uh, But it's in the sense of just making sure justice is done to... uh, to the criminal. So, I mean, another way of putting it would just be what goes around comes around. <laughs> the mm. idea is that you're infl- you're inflicting on the perpetrator what they did or what they sought to do to the victim. Uh, and you're retaliating with, with that uh, punishment. 
And, you know, there's a concept of like equal compensation here, right? So if you defraud somebody, then you have to pay back what you defrauded them and, and perhaps also pay to them what you sought to steal from them, right? So, so that you're kind of being punished by what you sought to inflict on someone else. Um, so, so yeah, that concept lex talionis is just like the shorthand Latin way of, of saying it. So we'll probably, uh, do that, <laughs> use that phrase throughout, um, but here's here's something crucial. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you'll know that we're probably about to read the verse right before. <laughs> so that Get we a have some... that background context. Yeah. And I think this actually surprised me. I didn't know this until we started researching this episode. I'd forgotten that this verse was right before, uh, but it's going to pretty quickly go in some unexpected directions. So so let's look at Exodus chapter 21, verse 22 which is right before our starting. And it says this, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. And then verse 23 starts with, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye etc. So interestingly, this, this verse, this law, which is, you know, it's a pretty famous one. It's even quoted by Christ in the Sermon on the Mount comes after this very interesting kind of like specific case law. Right? You've got like, how common is it that men are just like so angry at each other, like fighting that they hit a pregnant woman? Like, I don't know. Yeah, I've never yeah, heard yeah, of that happening. Like, that they're very angry and fighting in such a way that they're not in control of themselves. And there happens to be a pregnant woman nearby and they happen to hit her. And, you know, <laughs> like, why wouldn't she like... get out of the way? You know, it's like, <laughs> ask, like, okay, I'm not getting anywhere near. <laughs> it's like boys will be boys, right? It's just, I'm getting out of here. I got a baby to take care of. <laughs> It's very specific, you know, and so that's kind of interesting that this comes right before right before our verse for, for this episode. Now, here's what's even more interesting is that, holy moly, is this a difficult verse to interpret, okay? Like, of all the <laughs> verses I've, I've agonized over while preparing for this podcast, this one's made me scratch my head the most. So, mm -hmm. okay, so here's the issue, <laughs> fundamentally. There's different translations about this verse, some of which are pretty explicitly, like, kind of pro-life in their, in their position, which, like, make it explicit that the harm is being done to the child. So it's talking about how to punish someone who harms an unborn baby um, that then becomes born. And then there's other translations that, uh, that actually try to make it explicitly about the woman. Uh, which you know could could certainly be taken in a more pro-choice position. Although there's plenty of passages outside this passage that make the pro-life position very clear in Scripture. But you know, uh, people going to try to justify things in the Bible if they if they want to. You know, so um, but it also could just be a different interpretation. It doesn't have to be a pro-choice interpretation of the verse. Uh, it could just be it's about the woman, not the child. In this case, you know. Uh, what makes it difficult is that it doesn't say if there is no harm to the child or if there is no harm to the woman. It just says if there is no harm. It's like, great. So who are you talking about, right? Uh, there's definitely some Hebrew intricacies here. For one, the phrase for the children coming out, when it says her children come out, 
that's used like for an ordinary birth in other places in scripture. And there's no instances that we're aware of in any extant literature where it's used to describe uh, a miscarriage. So it seems like this is a description of an, of a birth that is caused by a physical trauma. Now here's, Here's where this was a little tricky for me is that I've never heard of this before medically. I have heard of physical trauma causing miscarriages, but that's a little different than what's being talked about here. I mean, like inducing premature birth. Well, yeah, like the baby dies and is then miss, you know, but the process is far along enough, you know, that the the baby. Anyways, I don't want to get into the the gory details of it and the sad details of it, but. uh, It, it's not a, a term for like a stillbirth or a um or a uh, miscarriage in the traditional sense so i literally asked my sister-in-law who was in med school <clears throat> if she could help me and <laughs> shout outs to her i told her i wouldn't name her on the podcast but i'm very very happy um to have talked to her because she did not know the answer either, but she was able to Google smarter than me. And she found a paper, a medical paper published in a medical journal, which we're going to put in the show notes. (laughs) Oh, that's great. And I guarantee you there's some commentary that like talks about this, but just none of the ones I have access to. So I had to do my own independent medical research through my sister-in-law to discover that actually, yes, in fact, you can induce uh, pre, pre-mature, pre-term labor uh, through actually fairly minor physical trauma on a pregnant woman. And oh, if, if the pregnancy is far along enough, you can actually have a baby that is unharmed from this sort of pre uh induced whatever the medical term is labor so i'm gonna go with that uh as a guiding help to interpreting this verse (laughs) um with the caveat that i have no idea what i'm talking about but i'm sort of depending on a synthesis of (laughs) medical stuff that is outside my wheelhouse and uh, a one conversation with uh with my sister-in-law so uh so I'm I'm very willing to be proven wrong on this. Send your uh, complaints and questions to the John three fifteen podcast at gmail dot com. Yes, and I know <laughs> I know for a fact that we have uh, medical doctors who listen to this podcast. So we are depending on you all to set us straight if uh, anything that we're saying is like totally not true. <laughs> <laughs> so you know it's it's not a miscarriage, but it is does seem to be talking about an instance in which uh, labor is induced. Uh, via this striking of the woman and it may or may not cause serious harm to the child and so i'm envisioning a scenario in which the woman you know gives birth soon after being hit uh and the baby comes out fine and then the husband's like okay but you're terrible and i'm gonna impose a fine on you because you hit my pregnant wife and that by itself is a form of assault that deserves some form of repayment mm-hmm. uh <laughs> Uh, or if there's harm to the baby, then then there's going to be harm that comes upon the man who inflicts it. And I think uh, another reason why I think this interpretation makes sense is that the woman would already be covered by the life for life, eye for eye rule herself, because that's established in Genesis 9, 6, when Noah exits the ark. God says, you know, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for man is made in the image of God. So the idea is already present in the law without uh, uh, needing to say it, that that like 
a normal adult human or whatever who gets struck down by someone else would have to pay. Like if you punched the pregnant woman in the face and damaged her eye, you know, <laughs> then there, or damaged her tooth or whatever, then there'd be a case for uh, justice, but the baby wouldn't be harmed, you know, by presumably by such a, by such a striking. So there's already kind of law in place for that. And so my interpretation of this based on that uh, is that it is in fact talking about a, a, uh, non-miscarriage birth although it could also include a miscarriage because if the baby is dead then it would be life for life mm -hmm. on the part of the offender uh and that makes sense i think with the whole biblical picture of of uh children being valuable in the sight of god being made in his image obviously there's an abortion commentary to be made here i don't know that we need to get in the weeds on that we've already condemned it on this podcast before our position's quite clear uh <laughs> but uh what a fascinating verse <laughs> so yeah okay <laughs> now that we understand that um so i think the best way to go forward with understanding this verse uh or uh, i guess uh, these verses 23 through 25 in their context here uh, is just to correct some various misunderstandings of them and along the way we'll be able to bring in more details uh, of what's going on here now that we've sort of gotten that crazy verse 22 out of the way um and before I... we move on jeremy actually can i can i ask a question about this yeah go for it um so it's so something that that that's is standing out to me is that you know so at the end of verse 22 it says um uh you know the one who uh you know the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose upon him he shall pay as the judges determine and so, so it's interesting. It's it's that the the woman's husband imposes the fine, but it is like the judge determining it. And so, so it's, it seems like there's kind of like two things going on here. And I was wondering if uh, in your background research is this like the you know it's the husband imposing the fine, but there, you know you like bring a judge in to make sure that it's a fair fine, or you know to like dispute the case or. It, so, so what's what's going on with kind of the two pieces that are being uh, brought up here? Do you do you, do you have anything to to comment on there? I didn't examine closely like the Hebrew terms there, so like what's actually going on in terms of the logistics of it. But what I would point out, which I think is interesting to note, is that the offend the it is assumed that the person who ought to be repaid here is the husband, which by extension is his wife and the the whole family. That's yes, the way the, that the, the household. It, that's the way that Israel would have understood it. We didn't have this super atomized culture the way we do now. Um, like the husband is the one protecting his pregnant wife who's super pregnant, right? And so the, the whole idea is he's the one who's been been um, offended as well. So but you have this interesting idea of uh, the offended party is the one that's getting the, uh, the fine payment. But there is this civil magistrate, this judge, somebody who has been appointed to this position, and it's a governmental position, who is overseeing and enforcing the payment of it in some way. Right. Um, so it, it may be that okay. the judge is helping set a fair price. So the husband can't do whatever he wants. Certainly, I would say the husband can't do whatever he wants here because of eye for eye, tooth for tooth. He right. can't just do whatever. Um, it has to be uh, uh, equal compensation, like I mentioned before. There has to be a, a reasonable restriction on the amount of, of retribution that can be accomplished. Right. So I think the judge might be might have a part of that. Um, or perhaps the judge arbitrates if there's a disagreement between the victim and the and the criminal if he thinks it's excessive or something so there, there's some unknowns there um but it's a good question because 
part of what what we're talking about today is this idea of like uh not having excessive retribution but also the fact that the state is not the aggrieved party when there's a crime right the the there's a individual or group of individuals who are the victims of a crime and uh i don't want to get too far into that in the second because it's one of our points <laughs> um, about the misunderstandings um we'll, so we will we'll come it. back to that one later but... put a pin put a pin in that i feel like i say that all the time because all these ideas are so connected when we do these podcasts but uh... yeah it, it's hard it's hard to take this you know very kind of like nebulous interwoven kind of concept and then like lay it out in this linear fashion but we're, <laughs> we're doing our best here folks so we got a, a series of misunderstandings here, and and uh, I believe five of them. Yes, five. I just counted. Um, great. So uh, lay it on me, John. Uh, you you give the misunderstanding, and I will uh, I will play angel's advocate to your devil's advocate. Um. <laughs> certainly, certainly. Well, I mean, so the the first one that that pops into my head immediately is you know I can already hear. This, but the Sermon on the Mount, but the Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek, that we're supposed to be merciful. Uh, you know, we get we get all of this, you know, example in the New Testament of, uh, and we'll we'll get to it uh, next week of, you know, you know, don't don't avenge yourself, you know, leave room for God's wrath. That you know, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So, like, where what, what is this? We are, uh, you know, the ones who are bringing about this retribution. If God's command in plenty of other places is that as Christians, we're supposed to be merciful. So, you know, where's like the forgiveness and mercy in eye for eye, tooth for tooth? Well, there is none. <laughs> and there shouldn't be. <laughs> <laughs> so there's your, you know, straightforward uh, based answer. Um, <laughs> there it is. All right. On to the next one. <laughs> but that's the thing. It's like, okay, um, we are supposed to be merciful to those who harm us. And so I, I think it's good to, to maybe take a brief look at that passage in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And in the Sermon on the Mount covered before on this podcast, that whole, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you pattern is Jesus way of correcting misunderstandings about the law. And so, you know, Jesus isn't saying, you've heard that it was said eye for eye and tooth for tooth, and that's all junk. That's garbage. Don't listen to the law of Moses, right? Like, that's completely yes, cause, cause the opposite. that's definitely Jesus' perspective of <laughs> right. the law of Moses. Yeah. You know, the same, in the same sermon, Jesus says, you know, no part of the law will, will pass away, right, until everything's accomplished. Um, uh, right. Wait, is that in this? Am I mixing up my passages? What is it that Jesus says um, in the Sermon on the Mount? Anyone who relaxes one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. So that's in the Sermon on the Mount. There's definitely there that go. concept there. there. Who cares, right? um, <laughs> Your definitely knowledge hasn't I'm, failed you yet. I'm quoting Jesus accurately, at least. So, um, you know, I'm not going to be It may not like... be Matthew's quotation of Jesus, but... <laughs> Jamie, pull that up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the next thing that we need is somebody to look up Bible references for us. So... So you got that, but I say to you, um, do not resist an evil person. Uh, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And then he goes on with the other examples. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to uh, beg from you. And uh, the idea of this, though, is, you know, not to seek personal vengeance. And, uh, and I mean, the... the and and I would also say it all, it applies beyond personal vengeance because I'm thinking of the passage where Jesus tells Peter to put his sword away. Uh, 
Now, Jesus was about to be crucified for a sin he didn't commit by a government who hated the guts of God's people. From any, like, strict rights-based standpoint, yeah, Peter had every right to draw the sword and kill everyone who was trying to attack Jesus because Jesus did right. nothing wrong. Like, in the same way that, yeah, like, that you would defend an innocent person being mugged on the side of the street, right? Like, Peter had the right to pull the sword out if we're talking about, like, politics and rights but it wasn't the morally sensible thing to do because peter would have lost and then he would just kill people for no reason (laughs) right yes and you know he probably would have then been killed himself um and i would also say that it's jesus's prerogative to tell him hey like don't do this thing because it's jesus's life that's being threatened so he could like (laughs) sure jesus is able to like wave that uh you know don't don't defend me uh, uh, kind of thing. But I, I guess maybe the difference that I would say is there's a difference between um, uh, your own personal uh, safety for which you can, you, you could like wave that, but like binding somebody's conscience that you must also act this way for yourself, I think is not, I, I don't think there, that is being compelled upon us by either the Sermon on the Mount or other texts that we should go around telling other people, um, you know, hey, you can't defend yourself. Right. Well, in this case, of course, there's even the added context of, like, Jesus needs to go to the cross. Like, it has to happen, right? So there's even, like, an added element. But but all that aside, you know, just from a strict rights-based standpoint, yeah, like, all those people are trying to kill Jesus. I mean, they're not going to do the killing themselves, but they're part of this process that, you know, he has the right to defend himself, but not all things you have the right to do are the morally sensible thing to do in the moment. And so, uh, in this case... uh, resisting an evil person with vigilantism um, or resisting an unjust state in a way that is hopeless and futile is morally not sensible, right? So to take, you know, uh, there's an example my pastor is fond of, which has stuck with me with the Peasants' Revolt um, in the time of the Reformation. And uh, the Peasants' Revolt is often like lifted up as this moment of great, you know, socialistic triumph, the peasants revolting against the the landlords. But what it basically was, was a hopeless endeavor where a bunch of peasants took up arms and tried to kill a bunch of nobles who were way more powerful than them, and it accomplished nothing except lots of people died, right? So, so a lot of those peasants who were actually there and able to provide for their families just died, and then they weren't there to provide for their families. Basically, my pastor's point was like, you know, there might be a circumstance like the American Revolution, where if you can win against your oppressors, go for it, right? Um, but a part of just war theory that Augustine developed is like, you have to be able to win. It has to be realistic, you know? And so just taking up the sword to defend yourself against some stupid, hopeless endeavor, like, <laughs> that's not morally sensible, you know? Um, so, so in this case, I'd say you don't resist the evil person if you're just an individual um no you turn the other cheek you um prefer being wronged to seeking exact justice and to seeking your exact rights uh at all times uh the fact that jesus commands us to do this though doesn't mean those rights don't exist and doesn't mean that uh it's not good to defend the innocent and doesn't mean that there isn't a role uh, of retributive justice for the state and so um, this is a, an example of just mixing up your contexts, mixing up um, categories, we should say. Uh, Jesus commanding personal piety, which is definitely the context of the Sermon on the Mount, 
shouldn't be applied in a haphazard way to passages that are literally, this is the law of this people, which is to be enacted by government officials. There's different contexts. Yeah, and I would also add on top of it that I think part of the the intuition that someone might have that's being activated here is this notion of, oh, Jesus is merciful, Jesus is forgiving, so we should be merciful, we should be forgiving, which is like, it's totally true. But at the same time, like, God is just, and there is a, like, necessary other piece to God's forgiveness that is the retributive justice that, you know, Jesus faces on our behalf. It's like, we don't just get forgiven for free. Like, there is still justice that is enacted, even in our own forgiveness. And so the notion that the the metric is just straight mercy, you know, and there is no sense in which justice needs to be satisfied is that, that that's not actually true, even biblically. And so we need to be careful how our intuitions are being activated, uh, you know, kind of in these different areas to look at the context. Totally. I mean, what about the situation of a civil magistrate, a judge who is personally wronged by somebody, right? Well, maybe it's the kind of personal wrong that does need the legal process to get involved, in which case the legal process should get involved. But the judge could still act in an unrighteous way in their administration of that justice, perhaps by kind of skirting the rules a little bit because he knows he might get away with it um, in a way that might cheat the process to make it more likely that this acquaintance of his will, who who victimized him will see justice, you know? So, however, I, I would say in his personal life, the judge is supposed to forgive. He's supposed to be um, merciful as Jesus commanded. And of course, in a just system, he wouldn't end up adjudicating the case. <laughs> <laughs> something, something conflict of interest. <laughs> Right. Um, But so like, you know, so you're a civil magistrate. So as a civil magistrate, you are um, carrying out that function. But when you're not a civil magistrate, you're not a civil magistrate. Like it's a job function, so to speak. You know, when you're in church, you're in church. Full stop. (laughs) Right. Um, And implications bound, but we should move on to to our next point. Uh, Lay it on me. What's your your. killer yeah. argument against the lex talionis right so so uh objection number two is lex talionis it's clearly excessive this idea of life for life uh you know that sounds a lot like the death penalty and i, I mean is it really is it really the, the case that god thinks that the death penalty is right and just i mean is, isn't that just like yeah, can't we get away with you know doing some kind of justice thing that's not as harsh as actually executing people Yeah, so this is where it's hard to understand this from our cultural context because we've been so impacted by a lex talionis-oriented law that we don't even realize the original function of this law was actually to restrict vengeance, not to increase it. The point is not to make it worse, but actually to to keep things from escalating in constant vengeance vengeances back and forth i guess would be the way to put it something Mm -hmm. that struck me and helped me understand this was when i um i watched the documentary i haven't read the book but the the documentary the end of the spear if you're familiar with that john it's like jim elliott Mm -hmm. and the missionaries who were killed trying to like reach the the tribe um and uh, i don't remember uh, too many of the details but one thing that stuck out to me is like basically one of the problems that was going on 
in those tribes was they were actually killing each other off and dwindling in population because there was this constant like vengeance killings from various families going back and forth. So it'd be like, you kill my brother, I'm going to kill your whole family. I might kill you and your brother. Right? And, and there were these like constant retaliations uh, that weren't restricted by any kind of law. And of course, this people group has been uncontacted and uh, and uh, in remote areas of the jungle for forever. I, I we don't really know like right. the whole anthropology of this group. Um, at least I don't off the top of my head. But the point is that they hadn't interacted with a Lex Talionis influenced society. And they just, yeah, we just kill you back. Right. It's like, we'd be like, are yeah. you kidding me? You know, like, yeah, you can use self-defense, but uh, you know, you don't just get, get to go kill someone. Even if they are a murderer, they have to stand trial. They have to, you know, and it's only that person who can be um, impacted uh, directly. Right. Yeah. By the like retribution. You, you can't, like you can't kill the person's whole family. Cause like, like how is that justice of, you know, yeah, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> and it doesn't or actually it, solve it, the problem. Then you just yes, kill each other yeah, yeah. back and forth. Like, you know, the, I guess you gave them what's what. You gave them what they deserved and more, uh, but you'll probably get some back. <laughs> right. Yeah, or w- what it makes me think of is uh, the the uh, story in Genesis of, um, is it, uh, which brothers is, uh, are they? Is it oh, Reuben the- and Levi? I think it's Reuben and Levi who, like, it... It execute the entire town of the, the the people who like violated their sister or something uh, okay, yeah, yeah uh, but they, like i'm they... i'm jamie and i just pulled it up um oh, oh thank you yes thanks jamie <laughs> <laughs> so it's simeon and levi oh simeon and levi okay and see if there's anybody else yeah it's simeon and levi it's one of my favorite stories in the bible because of how brutal it is honestly it's one of those it's it's uh yeah it's a good one <laughs> Yeah. Oh no, that that's right because it's because it's Simeon and Levi who are the first and second born, and that's how why you get Judah as the one who well, inherits the the firstborn promise. No, from... Reuben Reuben's the firstborn. I'm mixing some details because I, like I, I thought I thought that it's in Genesis that you get the all of the older sons except to Judah do something that like disqualify them, and that's why Judah ends up getting the best blessing from Jacob at the end yeah you're you're on to something there i mean reuben reuben um kind of redeems himself at the end of the book but he's sort of a jerk earlier Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. you know with the whole like joseph thing um there's a number of details there i know reuben is the firstborn um but uh simeon and levi are the ones who do this for better or worse right um and it's interesting but that's actually i hadn't thought about that passage but you're right like they defile their sister dinah which you know she was raped right um and they just go in the city and kill everybody (laughs) it's like dude what's like i mean you know it's one of those like yeah i get it like you're mad um i'd be pretty livid (laughs) it's like yes great evil was done against her sister and yet like murder a whole town And they didn't have anything to do with it, you know? Yeah. And I, I love, so the final verse of the of that passage is, you know, Jacob says to the Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, <laughs> right? He's like, this is ridiculous. And then they yeah, respond, yeah. should he treat our sister like a prostitute? <laughs> yeah. And then it's, it's like, like, and then the story just and ends. And then the story <laughs> ends. And it's kind of like, yeah, Simeon and Levi, you have a point. He shouldn't have done that, but like, Dude, (laughs) 
chill out right yeah yeah well no and 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 this passage here i think is is part of the response of the we get the response to that later of you know there is this restraining that it's it's not family for life it's life for life it's not you know it's not life for tooth yes amen to that yeah, so I think that's that's kind of the gist of, of the uh, response to that is, no, it's not unjust to give people equal punishment. It's not unjust to take the life of um, extremely serious criminals, murderers, um, for example. Um, it's, it's not at all. It just uh, uh, perhaps seems so to pacifists today, I suppose. Pacifism is not an even remotely biblical position. Um, if we're defined, I mean... People define pacifism. There, Jeremy. <laughs> people people define pacifism differently. Um, uh, but if we're defining it as like refusing to use self defense or refusing to use uh, uh, like capital punishment, uh, then yeah, I definitely don't like pacifism is a pretty explicitly unbiblical position in my opinion. Um, if we're talking about anti war, now that's a little bit of a different different thing. Um, <laughs> we won't get into that right now. Um, right. But uh, but yeah. Okay, so lay it on me. What's the third objection here? All right, so objection number three is that um, Lex Talionis is, it, it's it's too reductive in the way that it um, uh, brings about punishments for, for different kinds of, of wrongdoings. Uh, we need to have a little bit more nuance in how punishments are actually in, enacted on people. For example, uh, if it's just life for life, how do we differentiate between things like manslaughter and, you know, first degree murder, where it's like, you know, one of these things is intentional and the other one's not. How can it be just that, like, both of those get the same punishment? Like, shouldn't there be some kind of gradation in the way that punishments are meted out for various kinds of wrongdoing? Totally. And, uh, yeah, this would be an issue if it weren't for the fact that there clearly are gradations of punishment in the Law of Moses. Right? <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I have all these... I mean, I'm the one who wrote these questions and answers, so I can have the snarkiest possible response. Um, but actually, <laughs> yes, you're, no, so, you're snarking <laughs> yourself, not me. <laughs> b b before I explain, though, the answer to the question directly, it's good to point out that some, some Christians get very narrow-minded... I guess myopic would be the correct word, uh, myopic interpretations of passages like eye for eye, tooth for tooth, where they get it, they get the meaning of it. Like, yes, there should be retributive justice. And yes, capital punishment is justified and etc. But they miss all of the nuance that develops in the rest of the Torah and the rest of the Bible in understanding this. And so, so for example, you might get people who, um, who don't understand manslaughter and murder in the bible who think there's no difference um uh and that's like a later legal concept that developed i mean certainly there have been a lot of developments in the concept but it's a hundred percent a part of the torah a feature of the torah that there's different punishments based on the uh circumstances uh and and so i i think this is an example of where christians get narrow-minded because they don't know the whole counsel of god which is why it's so important as we do to put these verses back into context and understand the whole biblical portrait so that being said so what is the context jeremy yeah well i mean we're gonna have to jump a little farther in the torah to deuteronomy 35 and this is a long passage uh 13 verses i'm gonna actually read the whole thing because i think it 
we'll quickly clear up this misconception. And uh, better that you read it than I, because we'll have less <laughs> editing that way. <laughs> this is an ongoing roast that John and I do <laughs> off the air where, you know, John is like an exceedingly intelligent and well-spoken person until you Thank put you. text in front of him to read <laughs> verbatim. And then he just like skips lines and flubs words and like loses track of where he's at. And, um, Let's you know. just say if if like if I was a, a, a you know an early church scribe copying the New Testament, it would it would not have been preserved to the present day. Like <laughs> he would have like a... skipped skipped Romans eight or something like that, just like the whole thing. It would have been gone, just, not like, in there. Fell asleep and left you know the whole page out or something. <laughs> All well, right, so, so hit us with it. Deuteronomy. Yep, thirty five one through thirteen. When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall set apart three cities for yourselves in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You shall measure the distances and divide into three parts the area of the land that the Lord your God gives you as a possession, so that any manslayer can flee to them. This is the provision for the manslayer, who by fleeing there may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live, lest the avenger of blood in hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him because the way is long and strike him fatally though the man did not deserve to die since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. Therefore I command you, you shall set apart three cities, and if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he has sworn to your fathers, and gives you all the land that he promised to give to your fathers, provided you are careful to keep all this commandment which I command you today by loving the Lord your God and by walking ever in his ways, then you shall add three other cities to these three, lest innocent blood be shed in your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, and so the guilt of bloodshed be upon you. But if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies and he flees into one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Your eye shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you. And there's our passage. So... So let's let's break this one down a little bit and give a, a bit of a summary because it was it was a bit of a long read, um, and so so kind of what we what we have here is Moses is telling the people right before they go into the land, hey, when you inherit the the land and the conquest and you know Joshua and Ra Ra all of that kind of thing, you're going to set aside three cities. Uh, they're commonly called the cities of refuge, uh, and the purpose of these cities is that if someone uh, uh, it, like does manslaughter, like kills somebody unintentionally. Uh, then ostensibly a relative of the killed person is going to want to take vengeance on the, the, the killer in that case. And so what the, the purpose of the cities of refuge is that, hey, the, the, the killer who wasn't intending to do it can flee to one of these cities and hide out inside of it. Um, so that basically the, um, you know, the, the, this Avenger, the, the Avenger, uh, the Avenger of blood. Is that, is that the, the specific phrase? Yeah. The, the one who wants to kill, this is actually super important for interpretation, by the way. Um, mm -hmm. the, the person who wants to kill the manslayer who is not a murderer is the Avenger of blood. Yes. 
So so this is this is Bob accidentally kills Joe, and then Joe's brother wants to kill Bob. So Bob runs away to one of these cities of refuge. Maybe I should have picked more Hebrew-sounding names <laughs> than that, but uh, but that, that's sort of the idea. So in this case, Joe's brother is the Avenger of Blood. Bob is the killer in this case. And so he can then go to these cities of refuge, and the cities of refuge will protect him from this Avenger of Blood. That is Joe's brother. By the way, um, jo- then- Joe is a pretty Hebrew name. Joseph. Oh, there we go. Hey, okay, okay. <laughs> I, I was accidentally correct. Um <laughs> Uh, and then, but then the the this discussion ends by saying, "But hey, if Bob intentionally killed Joe, then it's like even if he shows up at one of these cities of refuge, turn that guy in and let Joe's brother execute him. Like, don't pity him, don't protect him. You know, basically let justice happen in that case." Totally. I want to highlight some other words used here. So. It's interesting that when you have this intentional killer, it says, purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel. That phrase, Mm -hmm. the guilt of blood. Interestingly, the manslayer is not described as having guilt of blood. He's not described as having any guilt. It does say that there's the avenger of blood, but that's the person who's trying to kill the manslayer. Um, So he's not described as having any guilt. But... If you kill the manslayer, in verse 10, it says that innocent blood will have been shed in your land and the guilt of bloodshed will be upon you. So this phrase, the the guilt of blood, the guilt of innocent blood, the guilt of bloodshed, that that word guilt is super important to interpretation here. Uh, Who has blood guiltiness? The manslayer does not, who unintentionally kills his neighbor. But the avenger of blood who kills the innocent manslayer is guilty of bloodshed and this person who lies in wait for his neighbor and intentionally kills him certainly is also guilty of innocent blood so it's it's interesting you have these different categories here you have people who are deliberately causing a death or harm um that warrants strict lex talionis eye for eye life for life freak accidents though like the axe malfunctioning that's a total freak accident uh, presumably there's no way that uh, at least in this story the way it's portrayed the the person had no clue that that would happen and axes sometimes malfunction so in this crazy circumstance this um, final destination type uh, death it doesn't warrant any lex talionis because the man's entirely innocent here's the question though <laughs> what about things that are in the middle like, what about neglectful harm, which is not the same thing as intentional lying in wait? Well, so that's not found in this passage, but there's absolutely other passages in the Law of Moses that help us here. Uh, let's look at Deuteronomy 22.8. It says, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet or parapet. I don't know how to pronounce that word. It's like I'm a, pretty sure it's parapet. Parapet? Okay. It's like a, the... the like boundary like a on a roof around like, uh, yeah around a roof yeah so you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it okay so there's our magic phrase right mm-hmm. the guilt of blood so if you fail to make parapets on your roof now there's not a parapet inspector nobody's going to come by and um find you for not having a parapet But Mm -hmm. if someone should fall from it, you are guilty of blood. Mm -hmm. So there is a neglectful kind of harm that that is also brought into this, and it is considered blood guiltiness. Here's where it gets tricky. Neglectful harms are 
difficult to judge <laughs> and there's lots of gray area um mm -hmm. but they do still constitute some form of blood guiltiness um and i would say this is an instance in which we we may want to employ the concept of manslaughter versus murder mm -hmm. right so yeah certainly and you know another example of kind of one of those gray areas is uh, uh i can't remember if this is in exodus leviticus or deuteronomy but in one of the sections of law you get this whole discussion of uh you know if somebody owns an ox and uh you know it breaks out and gores somebody so that they die uh, basically the conclusion of that is like if you just have an ox and they gore somebody it's like that that's really bad and you got to put the ox to death but the owner of the ox isn't like culpable for that however if you know it says uh you know if there's uh, an ox john i just have to goring I have to jump in. You're literally in Exodus 21. You're a couple of verses down from our passage today. Oh, it is. Sorry. Am I stealing your thunder? Are we no, gonna... no. I actually oh, didn't okay. prepare a section on this because I just yes. thought it'd be too much content. But uh, oh, but yeah, perfect. Keep okay. Going. So yes. So 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 the uh, so just a few verses later, I guess uh, you get this discussion of you know if the if the ox breaks out and gores somebody, kill the ox, but the owner isn't culpable for it. However, it says you know if there's an ox who is known for goring, it's like has a reputation as a goring ox. Gore uh, McGee, the ox. <laughs> I know, which is just like uh, you know both very morbid and also kind of hilarious. Um, <laughs> so it's a a goring ox. If that gets out and gores somebody, then you kill both the ox and then you also put to death the owner of the ox as well. And so it's sort of this idea that you know there there are limits to how much you can like safeguard against. Uh, uh, you know these kinds of of harms. It's like you know if your ox gets out and gores somebody, it's the, it, this is the category of the you know axe head fall you know flying off the handle. Um, however, but if you like know that the ox gores people and it gets out anyway, it's like basically you know an ox that is known to gore people is too hazardous, and you should you should just have killed that thing already. You shouldn't be keeping it around, and in that case, you are culpable for uh, for murder in that case, effectively. Yeah, and uh, we see, we see in addition that there are different penalties applied to different kinds of gorings. If we uh, again, I'm sorry, I said I didn't prepare a section on this, but I, I did have some thoughts on it. Now you brought it up. Gosh darn it! <laughs> okay, great, great. No, please hit me with it. Um, uh, so listen to this. Um, oh, so, oh so, no! So, I think so, I know what you're going to read. So we're talking, we're talking about this Gore, Gore McGee, the ox, right? It's for whatever Gore reason, McGee. everybody's like, "Oh man, that ox is always goring people." Won't uh, won't Farmer McGee like keep him in in his pen or whatever? I don't know how to take care of oxen. Um, <laughs> so if Farmer Maggot and Goring McGee, <laughs> if it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. So this rule of you got to kill the ox and the owner. Then it says, if the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. So it just, it seems like, depending on the victim, there's actually not. And I don't even know where to go with that as far as like, because there's other laws in scripture which establish the equal status of slaves as far as like image of God stuff goes. So... I didn't prepare anything concerning like what, why in the heck this law is that way. I honestly don't know, but I would just point out that it's different. <laughs> so, so the the law of life for life, eye for eye, is clearly a little more complicated than the uh, simplistic. What I was pointing out before, like the simplistic evangelical, perhaps uh, if I'm allowed to say that, uh, 
way of just looking at it like eye for eye, life for life. It's like, well, so you, got, you got to look at how it's applied in all of scripture and it's actually kind of complicated, you know? Um, and so I would say in a similar way, these kind of neglectful ways in which you can unintentionally kill someone, but you are doing so by, you know, not caring enough for your neighbor's welfare. Um, they are blood guiltiness, but perhaps not all of them should be considered the same thing as lying and wait for somebody. Um, and so I, I thought of a few examples that I think are, are pretty relevant today. So like drunk driving, for example. Now tell me, John, what's your opinion on drunk driving? <laughs> it's a terrible idea. You shouldn't do it. <laughs> yeah. So like seriously, though, if, if you drive drunk and you um, uh, putting aside whatever the laws are in America right now, like if you kill someone when you're driving drunk, biblically speaking, how would we apply the law to such a, a case? Yeah, no, I, I think clearly this puts you in the category of neglect, that this is the not putting the parapet around your house, that, you know, if you drive drunk and you hit and kill somebody, that's, that is category of murder, not category of manslaughter. So you would say it's murder. Yeah, okay. No, no, Interesting. I mean, that, that, that's sort of, I, I, I guess I could probably take some more time and think about it, but that, that's well, kind of Well, I would agree. Really... Yeah, I'm not like, I'm not uh, disagreeing with you. It's a, I think that's an extreme form of neglect. Like you didn't intend to kill anybody, but that's an extreme form of neglect. I think that's right. a step beyond not putting a parapet on your house, I would even say, you know, mm -hmm. um, because yeah, I, I don't know. I won't go too much into that. Okay. So what about, um, so this was all over the news a few months ago absolutely horrifying um this i don't know if you saw this john this building the apartment building that collapsed in florida mm -hmm. um and i killed lots of people they were searching for survivors yeah. for weeks if not months um and so well <laughs> i'm sure it's going to be an absolutely ridiculous legal battle it'll go on for years about this but right. like how would we apply that? So uh, there, there's indications that the building collapsed because it was maintained poorly and perhaps not up to code. How do we apply that, right? <laughs> yeah, no, and, and, and that's a harder one. And, and, it, and I think what makes it hard is knowing basically what, what qualifies poor maintenance. Like, you know, what, what kind of maintenance is sufficiently poor to make you culpable for... Uh, you know, at, like severe accidents like that, because it's like ostensibly. It, well, and what's interesting is is that it's not necessarily even connected with whatever the city code might be. Like it could be the case that in reality the city code is way more restrictive than you, you know what would be reasonable in that case. To where the reality of the situation is, even if you didn't meet code, I, I mean, it probably still isn't neglect. Um, you know, you know, given whatever the details of it are, this um, is where I, the libertarian be... side comes out, right? Because what if the code well, sucks? What if it's just yeah. stupid and no one should? <laughs> right. right, right. Or, or what if the code doesn't actually um, accurately take into account what would be necessary to um, uh, kind of properly safeguard against uh, eventualities like this? So it's like, you yeah, know, like should we find them guilty if they were to code, but the code wasn't sufficient for? I, I I tend to think yeah we actually should like uh, there's my libertarian side right like I, if yeah. I was on a jury I would probably actually not consider the code that much except for maybe like if they were super in violation of it then I would maybe consider that an indication of them being lax sure. and not caring um, but uh, but if they were like if they were to code but the code was clearly insufficient to any civil engineer or structural engineer or whatever I think right. is more what I mean like. If, if any structural engineer that you'd hire would say this ain't right 
then I would probably vote to convict, you know, of manslaughter, probably, at least. Um, mm-hmm. In this case, it's a manslaughter of a lot of people, so that makes it also a little more complicated. Right. Um, this is definitely one, though, and, and we're, we're getting here, I think, we're starting to approach this element, which is there's no obvious and easy way to apply Lex Talionis. This is a complicated, this, this circumstance would depend entirely on the details. And there's going to be some details we don't know. There's going to be some things that's like, how did the building collapse? We've got some guesses, um, but and and some of them are sound, but there might be elements we are unsure of, and yeah, you know. So yeah, well, and, and then who you know, who is actually maybe responsible? Maybe we'll do an episode on the podcast more about the law of Moses because it also handles how do you deal with you know examples where you don't have access to perfect information. Sure, and, you know how do you do things justly if you don't know. Who's actually responsible here? Is it the building owner? What if it's like not their job to make sure that the building's safe? Like, what if mm-hmm. that's something that they completely foisted off onto someone else and then they just didn't do their job and signed off on things they shouldn't? I mean, who who do you actually hold responsible here? That's not yeah. an easy question. I think someone ought to be, probably. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. That's easier said than done. I, I'm glad I'm not on that case. Okay, so final one. This is another hot button one. This happened, I think, last year or maybe two years ago. So um, the the woman who came home late at night to her apartment and saw a man who she didn't recognize in her apartment and pulled out her gun and shot him. And later, soon after, discovered that that wasn't her apartment. In her delirium, she was tired. She went to the wrong apartment and shot the man. Um, and she was convicted, but I don't remember what the charge was. I know she's not doing life in prison or being executed. I I believe, I remember hearing it and thinking the sentence was kind of light, but also like it wasn't super light. It was, you know, a reasonable sentence. This one I think is really tricky to apply Lex Talionis to for a number of reasons, because it's, first of all, it's obvious that she wasn't premeditated. Like she didn't intend to kill this guy. Right. However, there's also this element of like, so the first thing you do when you encounter someone you don't know is to shoot them. I mean, like, even if he was like in hiding in wait to invade her apartment and to get her when she got home, she was like at the doorway. She could have run away, you know, and there's a principle here of self-defense of like proportionality and like you're at actual risk and harm. Right now, this is all being debated a lot because of the Kyle Rittenhouse trial as we record this. I think that one's a lot more cut and dry that it was self-defense this was clearly not legitimate self-defense because she wasn't actually in harm's way um and had no reason to think she was that's it's another um you know no the the reasonable person you know part of the law right no reasonable person should have felt threatened in this circumstance or or should have thought that the it was time at least to to pull out the gun so i'm curious what you think about this one is this murder manslaughter How, how does this apply yeah i don't know (laughs) <laughs> you mean you don't have like the one size fits all answer yeah no sorry <laughs> yeah, I know. yeah i think it's tricky i think i would i would be on the side that uh i'm glad they didn't like execute her for this one but she should also be completely barred from like owning weapons once she gets out just like you can't <laughs> You're not going to kill someone that quickly with a punch, you know, mm-hmm. and and I definitely I'm a Second Amendment guy. But uh, but I think if, if you're convicted of a violent crime, you can definitely have that right revoked. <laughs> you know? 
So, but this is a case where she's clearly not a threat to society, really, just because she did this. So I think, you know, you punish her, but then you you can't like, I don't think you necessarily biblically have to say that she needs to be executed. Um, it's a little bit different than lying in wait for somebody. Yeah. Anyways, this is just like an example of how difficult this is to apply, right? Um, right. Gray area, neglectful harms. Okay, let's move on to number four. All right, so number four is, um, well, clearly, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. So when you get in a brawl with somebody and elbow them in the face and knock out one of their teeth, you got to get the pair of pliers out and pull out your tooth, the same one on that side of your face. And I hope that tooth wasn't knocked out earlier by another person because then it's just going to be really hard to enact this justice against you. So I hope you have the right tooth. So you're, what you're saying is that we should apply this in a hyper-literalistically uh, Well, I'm just saying the Bible fashion. says it, and it's pretty clear, so we got to do it. Right. Okay. So this is the fun part where we say that this, this law is not meant to be understood literally, but then we quickly give the caveat that that doesn't mean it's not extremely, like, shouldn't be followed, right? Because it's like you hear people say, well, I don't think we should take the Bible literally. And what they mean is that we shouldn't take the Bible at all, right? <laughs> it's like, okay, so we're, I, we are about, I, I'm about to argue that we shouldn't take this command literally, but I don't mean by that that we shouldn't take it extremely seriously. <laughs> so like, you know, um, Mr. Uh, Mr. Literalistic Interpretation here, just give, give me an ear, okay? Okay, okay. <laughs> I'll hear you out. I'll hear you out. My, 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 uh, uh, can feel the hairs standing up on the back of my neck as Jeremy's saying we shouldn't take it literally. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to look at the very next verses after verse 25. <laughs> To prove my point, verses 26 and 27, and we've sort of hit at similar topics already, but uh, it says, When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. Okay, so in this case, justice for the slave, Moses specifically says, is not striking the eye or the tooth of the master. It's being set free from enslavement to his master. That's not at all a literal interpretation of eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And this is the very next law in the law of Moses. It's an application of what was just said. Using the exact same body parts, even. Yes. <laughs> so how do we understand this? Well, so, I mean, the justice for this this aggrieved slave, it's it's very related to the principle, though, if, if we're willing to understand that the principle is meant to be understood as a principle and not a literal law. Um, the slave is being released from his service because, well, A, his body's been damaged, so he can't actually do the work, right? Um, B, the master he must serve has proven himself abusive. Uh, and C, the master loses the economic value of the slave that he purchased, right? Mm -hmm. So by refusing to treat his slave justly, the master loses his privileges and his economic value that the slave was providing. Um, and so it's a fitting punishment for the crime. It's like you destroy your own, you know, property. Of course, we, we would say slaves aren't legitimate property, um, but that was the way Israel, um, Israel's economy functioned, right? And so it's like you destroy your own property and then it's kind of like you're lost, dude. Like you destroyed your own property and now that he's free to go. Uh, and so the, the, and, and that's good for him. 
and it's um, right for you. It's the right punishment. Right. And so this is this is fitting. It's fitting and it's and it's equal compensation. The slave just gained a lot. He gained his freedom. Um, and you just lost a lot for having um, be, been abusive to your slave. This is certainly something that I wish um, antebellum slavery in the United States had, you know, like those slave masters in the South who appealed to the Bible to justify their uh, their wickedness. And it's like, okay, well, if, if you're one why, of those guys... You're setting your <laughs> slaves free when you beat them, right? Right, yeah, you're following scripture. Yeah, I, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> so, to, but let's extend this... Well, Oh, yeah, sorry, and, and it even extends to the previous passage that we were talking about of, you know, the, the, the men fighting and, you know, hitting the pregnant woman. Um, uh, it's, you, you know, the result of it is that the man or, you know, the person who strikes the woman has a has a fine levied against him. It's like it's not that, you know, we wait for him to get married and his wife to be pregnant and then punch her like, you know, that that would be like literal tooth for tooth, eye for eye. Um, you know, but that's not what it's saying is there's a fine that's being levied against him. So there's some kind of equivalence or, you know, some kind of monetary equivalence that's being assigned to the the, the damages that don't cause harm, um, which is what's being levied against him. And that's put in direct parallel with eye for eye, tooth for tooth. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like some some things can't simply be uh, applied in this way. Like, okay, you punch a pregnant woman. <clears throat> I don't know how you um, inflict any sort of direct eye for eye punishment there unless the woman, the person who hit her is also a pregnant woman, but then you'd also be endangering another, another yeah, baby. That one, that one doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, so it's like, okay, so instead the husband's going to fine him, and that's only if there's no harm to the baby. If there is harm to the baby... Life for life. Life for life, yeah, yeah. for sure. But and, and So let's think about it a little more, though, okay? Because it's not just eye for eye. This whole law includes things like burn for burn and stripe for stripe, okay? How does burn for burn apply to either the woman or the child if the context is men striving together and accidentally hitting a woman? I mean, unless they have a Zippo lighter in their hands while they're fighting or something like that couldn't possibly apply to the circumstance, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, like, obviously this is meant to express a principle which is supposed to be applied in other places in the law. Um, like... So, so, and here's the way I read it, and I think this is, is very reasonable. Verse 23 is a pivot from this specific law in verse 22, talking about um, the women, uh, the, the pregnant woman who's hit by the, uh, the striving men, right? So 22 is this specific case, which I, if I were to guess, historically, it probably was a real case that got put before Moses or one of the men he had appointed to adjudicate cases. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, likely I, one that people heard about. Right. It's, it was likely a complicated case because, yeah, it's kind of tricky. What do you do in this circumstance, right? The, he didn't mean to hit her, but he did. Uh, the baby was born and the baby was dead, um, but we don't know exactly what killed the baby. You know, just this. Right. And so the, the, the judgment was difficult. And, uh, and this is a little bit of historical reconstruction here, but I think it's a reasonable guess. Uh, and so verse 22 uh, establishes this specific case law. And then verse 23 through 25 explain the legal principle that undergirded that judgment. And the reason why I say this is because of what we mentioned much earlier about Genesis 9-6. This was already a legal principle among the people of God because Noah was told it by God after he got off the, the ark. This was part of like 
Israel Israel's oral tradition at this point, this law of eye for eye, tooth for tooth. So this wasn't something Moses came up with here. It was the judgment about the pregnant woman who was hit. Right. That he applied a pre-existing uh, principle that was understood as a legal principle in Israel's oral tradition. And then he cited that tradition here as the, the basis for it. Now, I'm not super big on like historical criticism of the Bible and stuff. And this is a bit of a reconstruction, but uh, that's the way I see it. Verses 23 through 25 are the principle that verse 22 is appealing to. Um, so, so yeah, so that's, that's the circumstance here. I would point to other like points in the law, which seem to be extremely specific scenarios. And I think the point of, of some of these verses is to, is to give examples of how law is applied. Of course, in America, we have the concept of case law. That's what the courts do. That's what the Supreme Court is, is, um, functions as, um, we have like Deuteronomy 25, 11 through 12. This has always mystified me. Uh, it says, when men fight with one another and the wife of the one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of him who is beating him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the private parts, then you shall cut off her hand. <laughs> Your eyes shall have no pity. It's like, was this such a common occurrence that there really needed to be a law about it? Like, the, like... <laughs> Yeah, it was like, I mean, clearly that that's, that's the first thing that my wife thinks to do when I'm brawling with somebody in a tavern, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, to me, the only way to make sense of this passage, and, and I didn't realize this even until I was kind of researching this episode, is like, oh, it's not supposed to be some extremely, like, it's not that this was a common problem in Israel, that they had to make a law for this. <laughs> this happened one time, maybe two times in a really wacky timeline. <laughs> and the case was so difficult to judge that they put the judgment in the book of the law mm -hmm. <laughs> um, as a way of helping us apply it. Yeah. Uh, that's that's and now that I I'm like now that I realize that I'm like oh of course that's what it is right? of course that's what <laughs> it's not that Israel had all these wacky problems with like men accidentally hitting pregnant women it's like it was an extremely rare circumstance like yes it's, like it's with not the, the woman case who that the Israelites were just terrible at affixing axe heads to axe handles <laughs> right yeah 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 that's another example of something that was probably like a real case yeah but it, i mean it reminds me of the the woman who who shot the innocent man thinking it was an invader in her home it's like well right goodness that's such an unusual story i've never heard of that before you know um so it's a little difficult to judge people probably have different opinions you know um and so that's probably why they they made their way into this uh into this literature so that's the way I'm seeing the flow of this law and why it goes on to to talk about what happens if slaves are beaten and an iron tooth falls out. He's, he's putting that principle there, which already existed in Genesis, um, and trying to, to give examples of the way it's applied in different circumstances that might be tricky to adjudicate. And I believe the ox goring is an extension of that, which you, you had brought up, because that's literally the next section at the end yeah, of the chapter. And, and, yeah, and I would say that I don't even think that's that notion of actual cases being given as examples to illustrate the the, the uh, principle like i don't think that's that very much of a stretch because i think that's kind of exactly what we have happening with solomon of you know the story of the you know the two women you know fighting over the infant of this like really bizarre story of these two ladies who are like sleeping in the same room and one of their infants dies and then they're fighting over the other one. And so, you know, and then Solomon gives this really shrewd, wise judgment about like, oh, well, you know, cut the baby in half. And, you know, to discern which of the two women was the true mother. It's like it's another one of those like 
that's a really hard case and it's kind of a bizarre situation, but it's sort of included to illustrate this point. And in, in, in that case, it's about showing Solomon's wisdom. But you know, that the point that I'm trying to make is I don't think this is a weird like historical reconstruction stretch that you're making necessarily. I think we just sort of have precedent that like, yeah, that's just kind of a thing that the Bible does. Totally. <clears throat> and it also makes sense if you think of the law, which is an accurate way to think of it, as more than just um, a collection of laws, but also a collection of um, like ways to understand and apply justice and, and apply God's ethics in the real world, um, which it is. Certainly, it's, it's, more, it's not actually a comprehensive legal code, even right. though there's many laws in it that were a part of a legal code. There's lots of gaps in it that like, you would need in order to have a functioning society. Um, you know, especially when it when it comes to, you know, various, I don't know, civic ordinances and stuff. But uh, anyways, so so there's that there's that point. Uh, it's not a literal command. We should not understand it literally. We should understand it as a principle which actually upholds its seriousness. Right. And uh, mm -hmm. the one part that I would say is fairly close to literal is just life for life, you know, but but right. with the caveat that there exists different ways of taking life, different levels of premeditatedness, different levels of neglect and unintentionality, which should be considered. But anything that's a deliberate taking of life should definitely be met with the death penalty, according to this verse. Mm -hmm. That's <laughs> That would be my way of understanding it and its various applications. All right, number five. <laughs> number five. All right. Uh, I would say that, uh, so if we're extracting out this principle of equal compensation or maybe not not necessarily equivalent, but equal compensation. Then, uh, so let's just like bust out the ledger and start writing down like what's the dollar amount of an eyeball? What's the like dollar amount of a tooth? What's the dollar amount of a stillbirth? Or a, I, I guess you know not a stillbirth, but a, an actual live birth, but with damages, um, so that we can you know get this objective, obvious, nice, clear cut set of ordinances for defining what this what this actually looks like that's that, that that's what we should do now right jeremy yeah that's pretty uh pretty bold of you to assume that it's this easy and obvious right <laughs> I, I think i think our discussion has been revolving around that it's like this right. is actually really difficult to implement and to have an objective understanding that covers every case mm -hmm. i would say uh it's like th this is this <laughs> is the whole reason why we have judges is because it's not it's not clear it's not obvious in every circumstance at least right right well, and I would say, so let's even go a step further. It's not even predictable or obvious within the law itself. <laughs> um, and to illustrate that, we're going to talk about um, not oxes goring people, but oxes falling into a pit. Um, <laughs> so we're again, we're again starting in Exodus 21 at the very end of the chapter this time, but we're in the very same segment of the law. Starting at verse 33, and we'll go to the first verse of chapter 22. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. So, commentary would be, um, you know, so You're, this is a it's neglect. It's purchase. Yeah. yeah, this is a neglect, um, because he doesn't cover the pit. Okay, so going on. When one man's ox butts another's so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Okay, so unintentional, not the fault of the one man. Um, so they, you know, both of them share in the loss. Yeah. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its <laughs> owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast 
shall be his. So this is not the ox goring people, but goring another ox. And in this case, right. if he knows that the ox is Gore McGee, then he has to pay his neighbor for the, the loss of his oxen. And then lastly, it says this, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. I feel like we're playing Catan or something here. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, you can cash those four sheep in for, uh, uh, you know, a for stone. another sheep. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the best trade. This is the best trade deal in the history of trade deals. <laughs> um, so within the law of Moses itself, the compensation for the dead animal is completely different, like drastically different based on the intent of the, of the uh, perpetrator and the level of culpability that he has. So negligence is still considered criminal, but you only have to pay back what was lost. It's treated with far less severity than premeditated theft, which is literally fivefold or fourfold what was stolen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just off the top of my head, I believe there's other passages which talk about like restoring twofold, right? So you you restore what was stolen, and then like on top of that, um, and because then you're kind of you're being yeah, inflicted yeah, some... with what you intended to inflict on the other person. Oh yeah, 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 interesting. Yeah, and I I seem to remember, you know, you you add 20% of the value in some cases. Yeah, so it seems like there's literally no pattern. I mean, maybe there's a pattern, but there's not a consistency everywhere. Uh which leads me to believe that once again, these were probably case laws that had to get decided, and they right. decided this is what's fair in this circumstance because it's neglect and it's not a premeditated theft. Uh, it's different. Well, and, and maybe to link this back with our original verse, uh, or the, the verse right before of, you know, the, the woman's husband will impose the fine and he will pay it as the judge determines. That, you know, here we have this, that there's kind of flexibility in, in the sentencing almost of what the you know ends up happening as a result of the individual case totally so i think that the conclusion here at the end of this like fifth and final um kind of point where people might misunderstand this is like i think what we're trying to get at is this um this principle is extremely important but should not be applied haphazardly or in a way where we don't understand the complexity of human circumstance and the complexity of the various legal situations that may arise. And the law itself is what leads us to that interpretation, both here in Exodus 21 and in the broader context. Um, And so that should, that should uh, both humble us. Um, It should also encourage us that like not all legal theories and um, developments such as like English common law, which I think has been a tremendous step forward for the human race, for example, uh, we shouldn't reject all uh, developments in the concept of law uh, simply because they aren't uh, directly found in scripture. As long as they are not antithetical to scripture, they may or may not be helpful in right. achieving justice. This is something that I think a lot of people get wrong. They think that everything is something that can be easily theologically determined. Like we can find the right political system just by theology. Nope, just wrong, plain old wrong. Like <laughs> you can, there's not a comprehensive political theory in scripture. Democracy is not found in scripture. Okay, libertarianism is not found in scripture, and yet here you and I are talking about how we are libertarians, and we're also right. talking about the Bible. Yeah. How? Why is that the case? Because the Bible doesn't actually give us a comprehensive, you know, picture that can that can work in all circumstances. Um, we have to apply wisdom to our right. real and life. 
totally. And I mean, and people have a great intuition with this for lots of other things. Like, you know, the Bible isn't a comprehensive book on modern economics or biology or, you know, like there's tons of other fields that, you know, we're, we're more than willing to acknowledge that it's like, sure, the Bible may have some things to say about it, but it, it's not like, you know, we can necessarily derive all of our knowledge about reality strictly from scripture, you know, that we're you know supposed to use our own rational minds and, you know, inquiry with the world that God's given us to, you know, figure stuff out. And that makes people uncomfortable because it interfaces so much with ethics and we feel like there should be a simple ethical answer for law and politics. Mm -hmm. But I mean, is it really that much different than things like healthcare? Um, healthcare de decides who lives and who dies. The advancements in medicine make a huge difference on our day-to-day -day lives. And yet it's not an eth it's not something that, that scripture can determine for us. Um, who's able to be saved from their conditions is solely a matter of human development in understanding the world around us, which is not always an ethical problem. Sometimes it's simply a, we need to figure it out better problem. Right. Yeah. Um, and this is getting a little aside from the main point, but I think that can also help us when it comes to charitability with people who have different political views than we do or different understandings of the law. Maybe you disagree vehemently with my opinion. I stated earlier on the, uh, the woman who shot the man in her apartment. Well, that doesn't mean you're a bad Christian and I'm a good one or vice versa. Um, it just means that like, holy moly, it's complicated. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And maybe this can help us have a little bit of epistemic humility, shall I say? Sure. Um, to uh, to understand that uh, not all legal cases are simple, and we wouldn't have people appointed by God to be civil magistrates if they were all something that we could easily figure out on our own. That's true. I think I want to give you a bit of a balancing swing back, though, that even as we have to acknowledge that, um, you know, Scripture isn't going to give us a necessarily comprehensive ethic for implementing justice— Scripture has a lot to say on what is just and what would then be unjust. Um, and so, you know, we don't we can't necessarily invent a political system from, you know, straight theology per se. But I think we can disqualify various kinds of political systems or various kinds of enactments of justice, given what Scripture has to say about it. Sure. Amen. Yeah. And I certainly wouldn't wouldn't disagree with that one bit. Um, that's a good, important corrective. So you mentioned like economics. We can't discern economic theory from scripture alone. Uh, we can discern that it is morally wrong to take people's property that doesn't belong to you. We can discern that it is morally wrong to fail to save for the future. Proverbs has a lot to say about that. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, and we can discern that that direct um, direct fraud. I mean, so we can discern moral things about economics, which should preclude certain opinions on economics more or less, right? I mean, I guess you could believe that theft is wrong, but that theft would also lead to a uh, a solid economy. And technically, that wouldn't be a direct violation of scripture, but it would be a violation of theology, because like, what <laughs> do, do you think that like, God would create a world with certain ethics, and then like, disobeying those ethics would lead to prosperity that that yes, seems yes. But, but the operation of the world <laughs> is contrary to the ethics that he is <laughs> so I, that probably would be a biblical theological issue but it'd be a different one i suppose right. thinking that the world is chaos and doesn't operate according to like you know a, a logically consistent god right um but but uh anyways i i think though the, the point still stands that while we may be able to rule things out there's also maybe plenty of things we can't rule out you talk to someone like C.S. Lewis, for example, and he would have just been insistent that monarchy was the best system there is out there. 
And he wouldn't have understood our, our American whining about democracy quite the same way, you know, and he's, he's recent. He's, 20th century he's not even in the era of absolutist monarchs right? right but but he had a lot to say that was positive about monarchy and maybe he was right i don't know c.s lewis was wrong about a lot of things but he was also super right about a lot of things right so like you know it's worth considering maybe he knows something we don't um that we don't know because of our own circumstance our own context anyways so what happens if we refuse to implement Lex Talionis. What what is the consequence here? Um, and who boy? <laughs> <laughs> I think you might know where I'm going with this. Um, so what happens if the punishment doesn't fit the crime and has nothing to do with the crime? In fact, what do you get when you <laughs> <laughs> you get the uh, the modern uh, <laughs> American uh, uh, justice system, <laughs> right? yeah so this is maybe where we go a little bit away from the bible and start uh just riffing <laughs> well yeah this this is when we start doing application right so <laughs> yeah so okay so i'm just gonna pop off a bit here okay. um <laughs> with it, Jeremy. and say something that probably most of our, our listeners have never considered okay so mm, mm. incarceration as a form of punishment so i'm not talking about like holding a violent criminal in custody for their trial i'm talking about like a sentence where the punishment is being held in a prison for a, yeah, so a length this, of time. This is prison, not jail. Yes. Incarceration as a form of punishment. <laughs> but yes, the same, same difference there. Um, so that concept is nowhere in the law of Moses. Incarceration is not a concept in the law of Moses. The place in the scriptures where you do see incarceration is when unrighteous people are inflicting it on righteous people. So you see mm -hmm. Jeremiah being thrown into a cistern by King Zedekiah because Jeremiah was preaching the truth. You see the apostles being thrown in prison because they were preaching the gospel. And you see in Hebrews 13, we're instructed to remember those in prison as if we were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. In other words, author of Hebrews is directly attaching imprisonment with mistreatment. Of course, it, you know, someone could argue that he's talking about unjust imprisonment. Nevertheless, it stands that incarceration as a form of punishment is never positively referred to in the Bible. And it is completely absent from an entire law book, five books, really, although okay like only three of them are super devoted to these kinds of topics okay so right. three three books leviticus or not leviticus exodus numbers deuteronomy is specifically what i'm thinking about um well okay leviticus i don't know never mind it's, it's, it's all it's we, all we understand what you're saying <laughs> okay okay thank you <laughs> so we got this entire law book and it's full of punishments it has death penalty it has you know uh money payments back you, you got to get the dude a new ox, <laughs> whatever it is. Um, cutting off the hand of a woman who seizes um, a man's genitals who's fighting her husband. Uh, no punishment says prison <laughs> anywhere. Okay, so I'm throwing that out there, and now I want you to I want to see what you say, John. <laughs> I mean, I, th I think you probably kind of agree with where I'm going here, but... Yeah, no, totally. And it... it, it now, 
one of you will say to me that, uh, uh, well, but the, the Israelites were, you know, uh, a transient community when they were in the wilderness. And so how can you incarcerate somebody if, you know, you're moving around from place to place? Uh, you know, but to that I will respond. But then they were going to go into the promised land and, you know, settle down and, you know, set up cities there. So, you know, if it was actually just, God could have told them to build some prisons. Uh, well, there's a ton know. of laws in the law of Moses that concern when they enter the land. Like, when, yeah, yeah, totally. there's laws that concern appointing of a king, which doesn't yeah. happen until much later. Yeah, 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 totally. And and I mean, and we even already have this idea of particular cities being set aside for special purposes with regard to justice. And so, like, heck, you could set up a prison colony. Uh, like that that wouldn't be like it, it's a thing that could be included and it is conspicuously not concluded now included now that is a little bit of an argument from silence so let me circle back around and say so let's just examine the notion of incarceration as a form of punishment and put it up against the principles that we see in uh, Exodus that, that's being presented here, Lex Talionis. Uh, okay, so, putting so up a finger, I'm putting up a finger because my computer's dying. I need to go get my charger. Man, this is like turning out to be a really terrible first video podcast. Oh, okay, man, I'll be right. No, I'll be right is... back. All right, I'll wait for you. <laughs> All right. So where was I? Um, uh, I was saying something. Oh, so let's 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 take uh, um, let's set aside the argument of silence for a second and actually examine incarceration incarceration as a punishment and put it up against lex talionis, um, which is law of Moses. What it says is just. So you know, talk to me for a second about or let me talk for a second about what incarceration actually is. It's this notion that we are going to, on uh, uh, funding primarily through taxes that we exact upon the populace, to create this uh, uh, cage system where we are going to lock people up, um, take away their freedom of movement, their ability to go around and generate an income for themselves, uh, and then we are going to, you know, provide for their their basic needs like, you know, food and, and sleep and, uh, you know, that kind of thing, but take away any semblance of privacy, um, a lot of, uh, 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 you know, notions of, of safety, of their ability to protect themselves from, say, other inmates. Um, you know, and, and that's kind of the situation that they're going to be in of, of taking away years of people's lives and their ability to be productive. And then it represents this kind of permanent mark on their record uh, when they hopefully then leave the incarceration system for the rest of their life. So it's this taking away of people's livelihoods, ability to support themselves, tearing apart families and funding it all off taxpayer dollars. Um, and kind of what do you get at the end of it of, you know, you know, that's then justice somehow. So like, so how does this work? Someone comes, breaks into my house, steals something from me. Uh, and then, you know, it goes through the court systems and then the person's locked up. So it's like, I've been defrauded and now I get taxed to then support this person to be locked in a cage for years. Like, how is that equal payment? Like, like, how is that justice for me? Like, how am I made whole? as a result of that, number one. But then number two, this person who stole something from me, like how, how are, like, how is it just for them to be like literally locked in a cage for years because they defrauded me? Like, wouldn't it just be way better if they had to pay me back because then I get my stuff back and then they have suffered, you know, the, 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 the penalty of that, that they, they, are essentially seeing in their own economic state that what they were trying to impose on me and and it's great and then they can go on and continue to be a member of society if they wish they can turn things around they don't have to be like locked up for years you know did, am i making any sense here like what what do you are, are we seeing some of the kind of conflict between kind of how 
frankly wild it is that locking people in cages should be kind of our default assumption for it's a felony, lock them in a cage, up against, you know, maybe there's a better way of seeking justice. Yeah, it probably won't come as a surprise to you that I see it that way. I mean, again, this is coming into the whole like uh libertarian thing. This is just something that I think um political conservatives really need to figure out a little better. This whole concept of like what is just punishment. I would suggest that any sort of system in which the state is considered to be the aggrieved party instead of the victim of the crime is a very fundamental taking away of the rights and the personhood of the individual who is harmed. In a system in which you put the person in prison instead of forcing them to make it right to the victim, what you're actually doing is punishing the victim again, because now their tax money is being used to house this person indefinitely. Mm -hmm. Again, And it's like, as you alluded to, there's no obvious way that that grants any sort of restitution to the victim. It's like, okay, so you're just throwing them in, I guess, so they're punished, sure. But the point of justice is not just to punish the person who did wrong, it's to restore what was lost to the victim. Now, in the case of the the crimes in which you cannot restore in any meaningful fashion what was taken, such as in the case of a life for a life, then you take the person's life. And the reason you do that is twofold. Uh, first of all, that's the best possible thing you can you can do for restitution as far as that goes. But, but more importantly, number two, um, is that someone who does that is a completely unsafe person to have in society. So you're taking them out from the capacity of murdering anybody else ever again. And I would say this is also why rape merits the death penalty in scripture. Yes, rape does merit the death penalty in scripture. There's some confusion on that, but that's a topic outside of the scope of this episode. Just take it from me. Rape does merit the death penalty. And I would say that that the, the uh, principle underlying that is simply like that that's the a kind of violation of a person's inner being and their their imageness of god their imagehood um that that is not possible to restore and and certainly that makes even more sense in a culture like israel's where uh, virginity was prized uh, among women more so even than today but even in our context where we we are very loose with our sexual morals we would agree that rape is a very is a much more violative act than pretty much anything else you could do to a person including stealing everything they own right Um, the only way it could get worse is murder um and so i think that's the logic behind scripture's principle there so so life for life i think that's as a rape for life i think is it fits the principle of lex talionis pretty well Mm -hmm. but so but that's the special case of those extra excessive crimes which are impossible to actually restore in a real way um in this life, at least, there is a resurrection. But <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I, I think um, either way, though, incarceration as a means of punishment. I mean, incarceration is even worse as a means of punishment of the murderer or the rapist. I mean, just how how low do we consider the dignity of the victim that we would keep alive the person who destroyed that image of God in them, right? And not to mention the victim's family. And this is why Genesis 9-6, the original verse that establishes this principle, 
uh, says it explicitly roots this to the image of, of God. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. When you destroy the image of God, other men must destroy the image of God in you. That's the principle here, right? So th there's a deep disrespect for God and for the people who are made to glorify him and who are in themselves glorious and wonderful and beautiful when we refuse to punish in the severest terms those who disrespect that. Yeah. Yes, and I'd say it's a, it's in, it entirely turns things on its head when the the state is made to be the victim in those criminal proceedings where it's like you know the it's uh uh you know the people versus such and such is you know like often the way that a lot of these criminal proceedings are uh uh you know made out where it's it's not that you know we, we have an entire category in our law for when uh, persons can bring legal cases against other persons. That's civil court. Um, but criminal court is, it's not actually a person bringing a case against another person. It's the state bringing a case against another person. Um, and so even in that case, the how we have in that system dehumanized the, uh, I'll use the term victim, or you know the, the person who has been the recipient of some kind of damage or harm, that you know we have dehumanized them where they're, they're not actually part of the, the equation like they're it's almost as if our court proceedings are denying that they're really the person who was damaged that really it is the state is the one that has been damaged in you know in in this case and and so you harmed I, I my subject like yes. one of my subjects yeah, yeah. harmed one of my other subjects and because you don't own yourselves but the state owns you and god doesn't own you and you aren't image bearers then it's my problem not your problem as the victim that's what it communicates right. quite clearly yeah, and so it it is. I I think it's very troubling the way that our criminal system dehumanizes victims. It you know assigns punishments that don't fit the crimes. Um, you know, in in this sense of of lex talionis, like we're saying there, and it that that and by doing so, it's not just that it's harming. It, it it's being unjust to the 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 person who was the perpetrator. But like you're saying, Jeremy, it's being unjust to the person who was violated. Yes, yeah. And it's unjust to the criminal, if we're not talking about the murderer um, or the rapist, but we're talking about like the, the thief. What does the thief gain by spending 10 years in prison where his, I mean, he's unsafe from the other inmates. He's got a worse influence on him from the other inmates. He's not able to provide for his family. He's not man is meant to be free and i just think it's ridiculous that we have this category in our law of someone who is like not so dangerous to society that we need to execute them and take them out of the human race right right and yet there's something to be gained by keeping them from society and locking them in a cage so that they can't harm anybody it's unclear to me how that makes anyone a better person um it's unclear to me how that restores anything to the the victim it's like if these people are not so dangerous that they have to be locked away or, or taken away then make them pay the person back punish them 
severely up to the extent of lax lex talionis allows make them pay back and in the case of someone who is a thief that could literally mean they're a slave now if they're not able to pay back what they owe they would become a debt slave so this is you know it's not like we're letting them off easy this could be pretty serious the the kind of repayment um and so punish them but let them go back to their life they have people who probably depend on them if they're stealing in the first place it might be because they're desperate and poor right like (laughs) this is not justice uh, at all to any of the people involved um you know and it's like okay so murderers and rapists yeah i I guess in that case i don't care so much because (laughs) they really ought to be dead um so whatever but but somebody who doesn't deserve that but does deserve some sort of punishment this is a cruel and unusual punishment that's like we're so we're so obsessed with our own virtues in the 21st century that we look on the middle ages, you know, where they would do things like cut your hand off if you were found stealing or something. Yeah. And we look at that. We're like, that's so barbaric. How could they do that? That's so evil. And I'm like, dude, I would way rather get my hand cut off and spend 10 years in prison. <laughs> it's not even close. 10 years, not seeing my wife and children or even two years. I mean, the, the shorter the sentence gets, the harder it is to choose. But like, dude, right. freedom is far more valuable than my hand. Yeah. It's like, who's the real barbaric one here? What's the cruel and unusual punishment? I know what I'd pick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. And, you know, maybe even to, uh, uh, in case uh, uh, some people may have a, a visceral reaction to you talking about debt slavery, it's like, well, I mean, what's the alternative that we have right now? Like, making people slaves to the state? I mean, like, functionally, that's what it is. If you're locking a person in a cage saying... You don't control where you go. You don't control what your schedule is. We tell you what you can eat. We tell you when you can sleep. We tell you when you can go outside. I mean, that's slavery. Yeah, completely. <laughs> so it's like, I mean, we, we can have quibbles about debt slavery, but it would definitely, like, debt slavery would be better than what we have now, or it at least would be more just. If nothing else, it actually pays back the person who's the victim. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, we, we think we're so we have such a smarter way of doing things, but the reality is I think we've rejected God. And because of that, we disrespect his image and a lot of our, our legal ideas, especially as as far as punishments go, I've said before, I'm I'm a fan of English common law and a lot of our legal tradition, as far as the court proceedings go. But when it comes to, and we could get so far in the weeds with stuff like plea bargains, which are just absurd. Um, (laughs) and like, just like the utter injustice of so much of the system. Um, but uh, big fan of jury trials. There's lots of good things in American law, but the prison system is an absolute travesty, I think, of justice and um, and needs to be done away with. And there's a lot of prison ministries out there, a lot of people who have um, spoken out against it. I was really surprised when, when like Kanye West became a Christian. Um, <laughs> like I found out that that uh, Kim Kardashian, his wife, I think they, they divorced sadly, but, uh, but uh, I think Kim Kardashian does like a lot of prison ministry. I was like, shocked when i heard that because i was like dang that's super awesome though because i wouldn't think of kim kardashian as the type to be doing that but it's like anyway my point being that like this is actually super valuable ministry and you shouldn't see it as i'm going to minister to the low lives who jesus told us to go minister to um because i'm obeying christ and the gospels for everybody i mean that's true you should have that attitude always but actually consider that maybe not all the people you're talking to are low lives maybe they you know maybe some of them are people who did something that shouldn't even be a crime maybe some of them did something that is a crime but they've been there for 10 years and it's completely not fitting their crime consider that 
mm-hmm. that that maybe maybe they're they're not supposed to be there. <laughs> maybe they shouldn't be. Maybe it's unjust. Maybe they're slaves of the state. I don't know. I think it's valuable. I, and I'm a hypocrite here because I don't actually participate in a prison ministry, but I just think they're valuable and, and should be considered more, especially given Hebrews 13. Yeah. Well, that being said, <laughs> oh man, uh, I think it's time for uh, the other meat. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So let's, let's get to the, so we've been, now that we've made some application to uh, modern day kind of politics, maybe let's uh, be a little bit more intentional about our, our particular applications <coughs> and give people some principles for how they can be thinking about uh, bringing, uh, uh, bringing to bear and using the the law of Moses in the present day. So, well, but we first some... of all, John, I think you oh. should, since we're doing a live video podcast for the first time, I think you should say the other meat like you normally <laughs> would, but without the sound bite. I think you need to. That sounds out. Uh, you get it... that low voice, and yeah. It's time for the other meat. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, get the hiss. Yeah, we'll we'll get some sound effects in for a future episode here. I think we'll we'll find a way to to be able to embed them. Um, uh, but yeah, so let's let's move on to the <laughs> to the other meat here. So so Jeremy, um, has anybody in history come up with you know maybe a list of like uh, I don't know maybe like three uses that we could make of the you know the law of Moses. Um, in, in how we're applying it to the present day. Anybody done that in, in the past, or should we just kind of come up with something on the fly now? Yeah, Jesus definitely came up with three uses of the law that we could... <laughs> uh, no, John Calvin, um, <laughs> who conspicuously has the same initials as Jesus Christ. <laughs> Oh gosh, Kaylee is cringing so hard right now. <laughs> so, anyways, um, John Calvin is far inferior to Jesus Christ, but he is cool, and he's a homeboy, and he's got some great theology. He's a smart guy, that's for sure. And one of his uh, seminal contributions. Everybody thinks Calvin's like main contributions were Calvinism. It's like okay. Yeah, I mean, he definitely developed a lot of doctrine there, which later got called Calvinism and, you know, got codified into five points and two yeah, and all the fun stuff. It was super stuff. weird that, that, Calvin is, or that Calvin called all of his teachings Calvinism. Kind of a little <laughs> self-aggrandizing. It's kind of like when I call him swingleisms on this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's true. <laughs> so actually, though, some of John Calvin's uh, best contributions were, were I think, in, in categorizing and... Uh, listing out various things which is a weird way to put it but like so one thing that calvin was big on was christ's various offices the three offices of prophet priest and king which is a framework we still use today and it's not something that's directly stated in scripture but it's a very scriptural concept that i think it was really wise of calvin to develop and and codify so that uh theologians and biblical interpreters could clue into it a little better and this is like that so so because because correct me um jeremy because i believe that isn't calvin basically responsible for the the modern uh like systematic theology format that that gets used in the present day that if you like pick up a systematic theology it more or less kind of follows calvin's style and format for how he kind of organizes and structures uh uh the 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 thing i 
mean, well, I would say it's definitely very different than than Aquinas um, or any of the other systematic theologians <laughs> sure, of the medieval sure. era. I don't know mm. that he in, literally invented it, but he certainly popularized it. That would be mm. my understanding of history. Like that, unlike the um, Summa Theologica, the Aquinas work, and, and other things like um, like Lombard's books of the sentences and stuff, they had mm. like a question answer response format, and then th- it's very structured. And it's actually actually and it's good reading. It's really well organized I, I like aquinas his writing style um so you know you'll have a back and forth kind of thing in the textbook and then there's a section where they'll bring in the church fathers and other sources like uh aristotle and etc and uh and it's very systematic and orderly calvin didn't do that whole thing with like the back and forth he was a lot more polemical and rhetorical mm-hmm. in his approach and i even though i do like aquinas i think calvin's writing is much easier for lay people to understand aside from the fact that I agree with Calvin much more than Aquinas on stuff, I just think it's a, a easier work to read, but uh, much more succinct too. Anyways. Sure. But the whole diversion that we're on right here is Calvin's thing really is the categorization and organization and kind of categories that he brings to a lot of discussions. And that's kind of the big thing. So he has particular categories for the law of God. Yeah. the threefold uses of the law and the, and the intent of this like development of Calvin was to point out like, what's the good of the law of Moses today for believers? Like mm-hmm. who cares? Right. Um, a, a question many of us have found asking ourselves, like, uh, it's not so easy. So, okay. So well, there's all this. Okay. So you've told us about Lex Talionis, John and Jeremy, like, cool. Okay. But that was back then. Right. That yeah, was that, the law that's of what, Moses. That's what Moses says. Right. Yeah. Um, but what about Jesus? Didn't he overturn that in the Sermon on the Mount? <laughs> which we've already sort of touched on. Right. So so what are these three uses of the law and how can they help us understand how Lex Talionis applies today? Um, mm-hmm. The first use of the law is to be a mirror. And so this is kind of, I think, the one that most evangelicals get the best is this first use of the law. And it's a very Pauline and Lutheran kind of idea. It's the idea of being the law reflects our sinfulness to us and our falling short of God's perfect requirements. So if you've ever watched like certain evangelists, like Ray Comfort is huge on this. Um, and I think not to, not for zero reason, he, he'll, you know, go down the 10 commandments. Have you violated this law? Have you violated this law? You know, have you committed adultery? The guy will be like, well, no. He's like, yeah, but have you ever lusted? It's like, zing, gotcha there, right? <laughs> like the law, the law is meant to show our sin to us and our need right. for a savior. Um, that's kind of that first, uh, use now so how does this apply to lex talionis uh i think this is actually kind of the harder one to apply to this of the three but i would say what strikes me is is simply like since all sin requires death (laughs) it merits death right there does seem to be a a built-in principle of grace into the world the fact that we're not all dead immediately (laughs) Mm -hmm. right yeah so that, that that strikes me as as probably the way we we would apply that um, the the fact that uh, if we were to seek perfect remunerative retributive justice at all times we would all be doomed pretty quickly. Yeah, certainly. You know, and 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 I think toward that it it also points to something we were alluding to before about that uh, it 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 points to the necessity of Christ's suffering on our behalf that if we see what, you know, so if we apply then lex talionis to our own state, that justice is enacted life for life, it is Christ's life who is given on our behalf, that our sin deserves death, 
And this principle is satisfied in the life and death of Christ. And so justice is uh, uh, dispensed uh, in that sense. Amen. That's a better point than I made. I think that yeah, that's awesome. Um, that's definitely yeah. there. Well, so the second use of the law is to restrain evil. Uh, I think a lot of people do get this, but uh, again, there's some unnamed people who seem to not get this, uh, who may or may not have a lot of influence in the church in America in the 21st century, uh, who don't seem to understand that the law's point is to restrain evil. The law itself is not capable of changing human hearts, but it can protect the righteous from the unrighteous. Uh, and here's a Calvin quote. He says uh, that the law is to curb those who, unless forced, have no regard for rectitude and justice. Mm-hmm. So this is sort of like the, our understanding of law in America, not the biblical law, but the way we might understand our local uh, laws as, as citizens of our own cities and states and, and governments and uh, the point of the law is to keep people from breaking it. If you break it, there will be consequences. So don't break it. And that law by itself will keep a lot of people from breaking it. Yeah. <laughs> Who wants yeah, to be just punished, right? that there is accountability. But, I mean, there is a piece to that. So, yeah. So, I mean, this is goes hand in hand with loving your neighbor, right? If we love our neighbor as ourself, we certainly ought to... Uh, be willing to restrain evil in our land. And this is this is where a lot of evangelicals start getting confused and, and start saying, like, we shouldn't engage in politics. We should just do theology. We should just do preaching the gospel. It's like, well, okay, so you hate your neighbor. Then. Definitely do those things, but... Yeah, yeah, but love your neighbor as yourself. And if there is lawlessness in the land, if there is... Uh, if there are laws being passed that are unjust or if uh, the, the rulers aren't following those laws, then that's not loving your neighbor, you know? Mm-hmm. And so the point of the law is to, to restrain evil. And so we should use the moral laws of the Bible to help propel us to uh, understanding how to, you know, perform righteousness and to do right by our neighbor and to love them. And so that's why we popped off and talked about the injustice of the prison complex for a while. You know, we, we were basically saying America's law is not just according to the law of God. Mm-hmm. That, that was the basis of our argument, ultimately, down at the, the weeds, right? This is unjust, and uh, and the evil there that actually needs to be restrained is the evil of the prison system. That's yeah. my take, you know? So we have yeah. to understand this well, use of the law if we want to love our neighbor. Yeah, and, uh, uh, you know, maybe to, to get a little bit too meta uh, on this, but, you know, if the principle is, you know, uh, uh, you have to put the parapet around your house— uh, so that if you know, and uh, unless that if somebody falls off and, and is hurt, then you're then you're culpable for it. Is you know, well, should we be engaged in our communities politically and otherwise? You know, uh, lest if we don't, they fall into chaos, uh, and you know, people suffer great damages. Are we then culpable uh, from ne- negligence for the descent of our society? <laughs> <laughs> I think it just blew my mind, dude. It's too late for this. <laughs> Sorry. Well, maybe I'll just drop that one there. And, and well, I think that uh, I, I think that this, goes. This one is not from the Lord, but from me. Uh, I, th- I, th- I think that goes along the lines of like you can't perfectly discern the fault of everybody, right? Like, <laughs> so. Sure. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So finally, the third use of the law. Uh, well, and, and we didn't really mention the uh, Lex Talionis here, but I think it sort of speaks for itself, right? Like, if you if you right. don't have the principle of what goes around comes around, and there will be punishment for for um, particular kinds of sins which violate 
the rights of your neighbor in, in particularly egregious ways, um, yeah. then you don't have love of neighbor. You don't have the restraint of evil. So third yeah. use of the law is to reveal what is pleasing to God. So Christians can delight in the law of God and please him better by paying attention to it and, and obeying its ethics. And, and this, I think, is where we really get to get a little confused because we think that the laws are esoteric and don't uh, don't always have something to teach us. Right. It's like, I don't know, studying that verse about pregnant women being hit by striving men sure taught me a lot about justice. I, it was yeah. a pretty crazy verse to honestly, like, get in the weeds on because it made me think deeply about the nature of like culpability and uh and the various ways someone can harm other people by their indifference and callousness i mean it's like i learned a lot as a man with a wife who's in her third trimester pregnancy um just by looking at that verse Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh so i definitely think we have to clue into this a little more as a church that's revealing what is pleasing to god what does yeah. um, killing the murderer teach you about what is pleasing to God, John? <laughs> yeah, no, no. I mean, uh, and, and I, I guess sort of we, we loop this in already of that the that justice is something that is pleasing to God. And, um, you know, maybe uh, even to set the stage a little bit for uh, the next episode, but that, you know, I think it does please God if we... Um, are uh, striving for justice in our societies that certainly mercy is good but justice is also good and that um again setting the stage we'll, we'll, we'll get to this more in the next episode but that like god does desire that he, that the societies of earth be orderly and just and conforming to what he calls just and so you know if we want to know what god's justice is the Lord's told us, like, you know, he gave us a whole case law system for what he, what is pleasing to him, what he thinks is just, what he thinks is right. And, you know, if we then want to please him in having a just society for ourselves, I think we should pay careful attention to what he's already revealed. Yeah, amen to that, for sure. It also teaches us, you know, like, frankly, to be morbid about it here at the end, (laughs) Um, like, that God is pleased with the just punishment of the wicked, that, like, this is actually how God has designed things, right? This is why we need to be redeemed through the blood of Christ, um, and our blood guiltiness needs to be put on him, because, uh, because justice will be meted out one way or another by God. And it actually pleases him to be just. It pleases him to zealously regard his own honor as first in all things. And he will come to inflict eye for eye, hand for hand, foot for foot, right? Um, As he says, uh, God will repay each person according to what they have done. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. That's Romans 2. And so, like, that in mind, the justice that we inflict on earth should be a reflection of 
the fact that God delights in justice in heaven. And no amount of extremely correct and important and vitally important understandings of God's mercy should dissuade us from the very many passages about his justice and his judgment, and also the necessity of us carrying out an analogous form of that justice and judgment, you know. Uh, so, I mean, just read Psalms. <laughs> just read Revelation. Um, yeah. Again, I mean, not to end it on a dour and morbid note, but I think it fits the theme. I mean, we've been talking about hitting pregnant women for crying out loud. This has been a bit of a depressing episode, (laughs) but a very enlightening one, a very enlightening one. I I really actually relish the opportunity to to do this particular episode. I think I've learned a ton. Yeah, I've had I've had a great time, Jeremy. This is this has been a, a blast getting to do this podcast with you. This particular one or the whole podcast? you know i i'll leave it up to interpretation all right do you have a do you have a final verse for us or should i uh close us out oh i didn't prepare one um well whatever uh we don't we don't have the milk not solid food soundbite anyways so that's uh, all right we've been going for a while how about i just close us out pour, pour yourselves a glass of milk at home and uh <laughs> listen to the outro Well, in the immortal words of the philosopher Porky Pig, that's all, folks. We thank you for joining us. If anything you heard today has sent you into a blind theological rage, feel free to lambast us on social media. Alternatively, if you liked what you heard, have Bible verses you want us to break down or questions you think we can answer, you can send them to thejohn315podcast at gmail.com. That's thejohn315podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.